Kia ora, and welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival podcast, the place where you can hear writers talk about their work, their lives, and the inspiration behind their writing. I'm Claudia, a member of the committee, and today I'm delighted to be introducing the inspiring Rebecca Priestley, speaking to Nikki MacDonald. Rebecca's eco-memoir, 15 Million Years in Antarctica, was praised by reviewers and longlisted for the General Non-Fiction Award at the 2020 Ockham New Zealand Book Awards. Rebecca discusses the science carried out in Antarctica, her awe for the landscape and wildlife, and her concerns and hope for the future. This year's Marlborough Book Festival is not far away. Head to marlboroughbookfest.co.nz for confirmed authors, tickets and more details about the event, taking place from July 7 to July 10. For now, please enjoy Rebecca Priestley speaking to Nikki MacDonald. And welcome to this session of the Marvel Book Festival. I'm Nikki MacDonald and I'm going to be taking this session today with uh, Rebecca Priestley. There will be questions at the end, probably about 10 minutes before the end, and there'll also be a book signing and the opportunity to buy Rebecca's excellent book uh, at the end of the session. So uh, please hang up for that. And uh, a huge thank you to today's lovely wine sponsor, which is um, Spy Valley. Now, I'm very pleased, obviously, to have Rebecca here today. Rebecca is an Associate Professor at Victoria University in Wellington and a renowned science communicator. She wrote a science column for the listener for six years and is the author or editor of six books. In 2016, she won the Prime Minister's Science Communication Prize. She's studied meteorology, geology, and creative writing. And her book, 15 Million Years in Antarctica, is documents, well, it's part memoir and part documenting uh, her three trips to the great southern continent. So please join me in welcoming Rebecca Pichley. Thank you. Now, Rebecca, three trips, that's a bit greedy, isn't it? My partner oh, went once so? without me, and I've never let him forget it. So <laughs> you, your husband, Jonathan, must be a very understanding, understanding man. I don't know. I, I kind of, when you ask that, I wonder if people ask the same of the men who go to Antarctica. <laughs> but, but because, and I, and I know you're not coming from that place, but the, I've mostly been to Antarctica with men, a lot of male geologists, and they always, when they meet Jonathan, they always say, oh, you know, you know, good on you, or, you know, how'd you cope and stuff <laughs> like this. And it's like, you just left your wife and kids for three months. I was gone for two weeks. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Um, I mean, Antarctica has, Antarctica has been something of a lifelong passion. Is obsession too strong a, a word? Uh, do you remember when you first even heard about Antarctica, yeah. when it first entered your yeah. consciousness? Um, my mum had a friend, Peter Barrett, who was a, a boyfriend for a while, but to me he was just sort of one of the the men, the sort of bearded men in jeans who, who were sort of at, around, um, and he was an Antarctic geologist. And he used to go to Antarctica in summer, and then he'd come back again. And the coming back was really important um, and significant because the other way I knew about Antarctica was from reading. And I remember there were these um, these British children's magazines called Look and Learn that we had at school. 
And I was very much a, a sort of introvert inside at lunchtime kid, and I'd just do all this reading. And so I'd read about all the heroic, heroic age journeys, Scott and Shackleton and Amundsen, and learned about Antarctica that way as well. And, you know, often these explorers didn't return, <laughs> didn't come back. Mm. So I had this sort of different, this more contemporary narrative of Antarctica as a place that you've got to work and come back from. Because you, I mean, you had a reasonably unconventional sort of happy upbringing. Do you think that that instilled in you, I don't know, a sense of, of adventure perhaps? Uh, and, and your mother actually herself wanted to go to Antarctica. Yeah, didn't I didn't know that. I didn't know that until I was writing the book and I talked to her because I was in the process of writing the book and I was trying to unpack and write about my early fascination with Antarctica as I remembered this painting that we had that she she painted that that had this these rocks and and a woman and it was all sort of pale colours and I asked her about it and she said oh, that was called Antarctic Dream <laughs> and and she had a series of works called Antarctic Dream and it was yeah a place that she was really fascinated with so it was kind of sort of got there subliminally I think and then I went on to um, study geology mm. at university and then the Antarctic Research Centre was a big part of the university and um, you know, people went to Antarctica every summer, so it became something. But that's when I started applying to go to Antarctica, but I applied many times before you I You did apply to many go. times. I think yeah. you applied sort of three or four, four times, times. In, in different guises. So yeah, you kind over of, you, you tried decades. to be, uh, you know, public relations for DSIR and then yeah. a couple of um, media grants. Mm. What was it that sustained that interest? You know, why keep going back, you know, when you get these rejections? I, <laughs> I wrote it down. I wrote it down in my journal. You know, at various times in my late teens and 20s, I'd write these lists of things I wanted to do in my life, my life goals. And going to Antarctica in a professional capacity was always there. And I think when you do that, apparently this writing down goals is really important and it can be quite important in achieving things. And I think it's because... I would have made lots of little incremental moves and decisions that took me closer. And I think even when I started writing a science column for the listener, I was aware that this might be something that could help me get to Antarctica. Mm -hmm. Even though it wasn't the main motivation, I think things like that were always there. Yeah. So you were 44, I think, when you finally <laughs> got to, to go. I mean, what yeah. did you with do? Three, when, with what, three kids. With three kids, Hannah. exactly. What yeah. did you do when you, you know, when you heard the, the news that you were finally going to get there? <laughs> um, oh, yeah, I was really buzzed. It was, yeah, it was incredibly exciting. I've been working towards it for so long. And at that time, I was already working on an anthology of Antarctic science writing. And I had was writing, sometimes writing about Antarctica for the listener by, you know, interviewing Antarctic scientists, even though I hadn't been there. Um, so I was incredibly excited, but it also all seemed a little bit surreal. It's like I didn't, wasn't quite going to believe it until I was there, in a sense. Um, and I think it was being the the day before you fly you go for fit out and you get mm. all the um gear and I think it was being with Alice Miller who I was traveling with a poet 
and she and I were putting on all our gear and sort of giggling in the, in the 18 degree heat of Christchurch, putting on all this Antarctic gear that it kind of, you know, hit home. Because um, it's ridiculous, right? I mean, how much does it, all that stuff weigh? Oh, a lot. Yeah, no, we hadn't, then you stand on the scales because they need it for the manifest of what everything weighs. Yeah, it weighs a lot, especially with the great big boots. Um, but by then I was kind of really nervous and apprehensive about it as well. So the excitement and the, and the anxiety were kind of, you mm. know, tipping over into each other. So, you know, you, you strapped into the Hercules, which I imagine was is probably... C-17, C- C- the oh, first time C-17? down. Right, yeah. okay. Um, so you strapped in, you know, it's this kind of military aircraft that's not exactly set up as a lovely, cushy airliner. No. Is, is it at that moment that you remember that you're scared of flying? No, it was, I had a very sleepless, <laughs> sleepless night beforehand and even the sort of the week leading up and Jonathan my husband's here will attest to this for all my trips just sort of the week leading up to it I do get very anxious and think about why am I doing this thing um and and I think I wrote a blog post that first trip I don't want to go to Antarctica tomorrow um and and didn't sleep very well but the other people I talk to no one sleeps very well the night before the flight um, you know, there's so much logistics going on, but you sort of looked after very well as well. Like someone will be at the hotel to pick you up at 5 a.m. and make sure you've got all your stuff and then drive you to the airport, which is very close, and um, take you through all the procedures. Um, so I think I took a, a, a pill, a, um, a benzo to calm me down. And didn't drink coffee, you know. It's kind of just being aware of what, how, how to sure. manage it. And then it turns, and then it kind of turns into excitement and just being a massive, massive thrill. I mean, what yeah. were your first impressions? Do you do you remember that? Yeah. Well, the what? first thing was flying down. So we first time we're in a C seventeen, which is a great big cargo plane, US Air Force. Like these seem to be teenagers crewing it, and. Um, there are only a couple of windows up front. So we were in actual normal seats. They'd put some rows of seats in for us. And behind us was a van and a helicopter rotor and all these slabs of cargo. And um, people, you could get out of your seats and go and look through this little round window. And about a couple of hours in, you could just see ocean. And then you could see a few icebergs Mm -hmm. in the water. And then a little bit further on, you start to see the sea ice. You come across the extent of the sea ice. And then out of the right-hand window, there's the continent. So you're flying down into McMurdo Sound, which is quite a big, um, you know, over more ocean. But on your right is, um, is the continent and the polar plateau. And at this point, people start um, lining up to go up go up into the cockpit and have a look. So it was up a little ladder and they could take a couple of people in there at a time. And everyone, you know, even the people who have been there 10 times, everyone's sort of going up to have a look and taking photos. And, um, yeah, it was, I mean, it was, I was just fizzing, I mm, guess. Mm. Yeah. And then, then, then when we came in to land, I could just see out of the little window some familiar things. So... I could see that we were passing Ross Island 
and there was McMurdo Station and just this sort of, you know, some antennae and buildings and things and then landing on the sea ice, which, you know, knowing that I was landing on a two-metre slab of ice mm. <laughs> added to the excitement. But I thought I cried. It was it was because it had been part of my consciousness for so long. This place existed so much in my imagination and then, then here were all these touch points. So, yeah. so when you stepped out of the plane, you know, was it what you had imagined? Well, it's just, it's just a big, huge, like my face was hurting so much from yeah. smiling. But everyone was the same. And and the, the brightness, it was so light, it was a beautiful sunny day, there's ice, and then there's a mostly the um, plane was full of Americans and they all went to get on one transport. They were all wearing red jackets and the New Zealanders – um, are wearing orange and black, and there are only four of us. And then there was a Scott-based guy in orange and black picking us up in a Toyota Hilux, and it just <laughs> seemed, oh, this is cool. No, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, your field guide said, um, I think that, you know, when you get back, obviously, people always ask, mm. what's Antarctica like? Yeah. And his uh, stock answer was um, big, white, cold, awesome, which I thought was yeah. great. Yeah. I mean, what do you say when, when people ask you? I usually say that, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is, it's such a, and I, I, you know, I wrote a bit about it. It's a place that it's hard to find the adjectives to describe it because it's not, and then it's hard to find metaphors because it's not like anything else. And I think absolutely Cherry Gerard, who, who wrote The Worst Journey in the, in the World, which is sort of one of the best books of Antarctic journeying, he said this place beggars the language. Yeah, you beat me to it. That was my oh, next okay. question because well, it's, such, it's such a lovely quote, you know. Yeah. It's great the way it, it, yeah, it encapsulates that kind of idea yeah. that we just don't have the capacity yeah. to describe it. But why is that? I mean, is it that we don't have the kind of fabled... 50 words for snow. Well, can, you know, yeah, can... it's all sorts of things. There's no indigenous language to the place mm. to draw on. Um, and everything is, you know, you just come into these superlatives. It's the windiest, the coldest, the driest. It's the everythingest, you know. It, so it's it's really hard to, to place it. And I find, like, I, I was journaling and taking notes and in a monologue going on the whole time. And it was really sweary in a monologue. I've just found us resorting to these <laughs> swear words to, to kind of express what I was seeing and what I was feeling. And, I mean, you, you yeah. talk about going to um, Shackleton's hut mm -hmm. and being faced with the awful pressure of the visitor's book. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, I imagine it as being the classic kind of, the, the leaving card circulates around the office and yeah, you send sure. it away thinking you're going to come up with something absolutely brilliant and mm -hmm. then you write, mm. best wishes, hope the job goes well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, Bill Manhire actually, you know, at this festival read out the, the lovely poem that he yeah. wrote about that, which was basically just kind of found mm. um, items from Zero Wow, awesome. Uh, I mean, what did you write? Well, I had, see, I had Bill's poem in my head yeah. when it comes to it. When it came, and it's like, what, what, what? I can't, you know, some poet's going to come and look at what I've written, and and um, and I couldn't remember what I'd written until I went back there a second time. So seven years later, oh no, it wasn't then. Sorry, the book by now was in um, in the archives at um, the Antarctic Heritage Trust, and so I was able to look back at the time that I went, and I, I thought, what did Alice say? What did she write? 
And I've looked and she signed her name and Alice the poet, she didn't write anything. Yeah, that's, that, that was fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Like the poet and, and she couldn't bring herself to, and, she couldn't find any words. Yeah, and then I looked back what I'd written and I wrote, wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, you're in good company, obviously. Mm. <laughs> I mean, you did a, a PhD in you know, the history and philosophy of science. I mean, what was it like being in that heart? You know, where you literally have mm. kind of science and history frozen mm. in time. Mm. Um, I was really fascinated by the sciencey side of it. Mm -hmm. You know, which often, you know, a lot of the photos you see are of the sort of kitchen and the colmans and the, the honey and the matches and the candles and um, and the bunks. But there was an um, I think it was in Scott's hut at Cape Evans. There's this amazing, um, the sciencey corner, the lab equipment, which was just stunning and, and gorgeous. And by the time I went there, because I'd been working on this anthology of Antarctic science, I'd been reading the original accounts mm -hmm. that the scientists were writing um, when they were there. And so that was really fantastic to then see where they were working in their equipment. But keeping in mind that they took all the good stuff with them. <laughs> the stuff that's left is the stuff that they felt was surplus to requirements or they didn't need or wasn't wasn't special enough to take back. So I had that in mind as well. I mean, someone said to you before you went down there, I think, don't um, don't bring familiar music mm. because it will sound weird. I mean, yeah. did it? Did, did, yeah, well, music I, did you I made a, a playlist, Antarctic playlist. So I just asked, um, did I put it on Facebook or Twitter or something? I, I, I said, anyone, like, I'm making an Antarctic playlist. Um, everyone, give me your recommendations. And so I got about 30 or 40 recommendations, and I put them all. I made a playlist with all of those things on them. And some of them were silly, like Happy Feet soundtrack. I, don't, <laughs> I didn't put that one on, actually. Um, but there were all these songs with an ice theme or Antarctic theme or something, a lot of them quite literal um, and um, there were, and I, I listened to it while I was there, and there were just two songs that really, two tracks that just worked. And one was called Holocene by Boniva, and one, and there were some lines in it. Um, I can see for miles and miles, oh, and jagged vacants thick with ice, and I can see for miles and miles and miles. And just the, that's quite a moody track. And then also something by um, Sigur Ross, who are from Iceland. Oh, yeah. And it's called, is it Glossolalia? Anyway, it's nonsense words. Um, it's a made up language. So, but there's something about, and there's the beat of it is like a trudge, 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 and it sounded like footsteps in snow. So I just listened to those tracks over and over mm. again. And when I when I was writing the book, I listened to that music, and when I went back the second and third time, I just listened to those things and nothing, nothing else. It, it, yeah, that just that, um, you know how sometimes, sometimes it's a smell, or sometimes it's music can just really evoke something and and you know does something in your brain to to unlock a memory. So were there other you know everyday experiences that that were transformed, I suppose, by by being in an alien environment, you know, with another 
normal things that felt abnormal. I know why everything, just the thing of going outside became a big thing. You know, here, even when it's a shitty day and it's really cold, you can, you can still just uh, go outside, pyjamas, take the rubbish out even though it's freezing cold because then I can go back inside and have a shower. You know, it, going outside is a, is a significant thing to do. Mm. <laughs> um, and you have to, this is from Scott Bass, first you go and sign out and you... If you're going anywhere other than just outside around the buildings, you get a radio and you've got to write down your intentions, what you're doing. You go into the locker room, you check the temperature and the wind chill, you put on all your layers. Um, if, you're, if you're going on any sort of a walk, you also have a backpack with um, some food, some water, some extra clothes and if it's a serious walk, you might want to take a little emergency pack as well, which has a little tent in it. Um, and once you're out, if you're going for a walk on the pressure ridges, which is the ice outside Scott Base that has some safe tracks walked on it, you have to radio in once you cross the transition, which is from the snow and ice on Ross Island to the snow and ice over the sea. Mm -hmm. And then you have to radio in every hour. Just to so we had this la the slide <coughs> of the flags. How do they oh. work? So that's yeah. basically designating so the, hazards and tracks. Yeah. And yeah. So the, the pressure ridge is, is just phenomenal where the sea ice sort of gets pushed up um, against Ross Island. It sort of buckles and makes these amazing um, sort of ice forms with some melt pools with seals coming out. And it's a place that people love to go and walk. Um, but it's not very safe. So the field trainers, every couple of days, they'll go out and um, test the ice with their poles and mark safe walking routes and with, with green flags. Um, or is it green and red are safe, which is kind of confusing. Yeah, I think it was green yeah. and red, which can be yeah. completely yeah. confusing. Yeah, and then black is unsafe, don't go. And then there's a different thing. There's blue line, blue flags mark the fuel line. So there's a fuel line, um, I think, from the American base to the airfield. Um, and you stay away from blue and you stay away from black. But green and red, you can go. So around the green and red routes, there are footsteps, and um, you can go for a nice walk along there. But you still take, you're still carrying a pole and sort of testing. So every week you go, you're kind of concentrating and having to. Yeah, very but it but it's engaged. it makes you incredibly aware of your surroundings. It's mm. kind of an enforced mindfulness, which is a word I probably wouldn't have even known back back then, ten years ago, with my first trip. But you become so engaged and connected with your surroundings that it's yeah, it's I, yeah. I just found it gives you a kind of deep sense of peace and connection, even though it's in a kind of dangerous environment. There was an interesting comment from one of the um, scientists, I think maybe at First Hills, um, who talked <coughs> about uh, it taking him kind of a, a two or three weeks mm. to see. Yes. And is, is that because the environment is so overwhelmingly different mm. or 
you know, what, why, what do you think he meant? No, I think, I think it's because um, in the world we live in and in an urban environment and in a non-Antarctic environment, or no, for an urban or suburban environment, the lives that probably most of us lead is very busy. There's so much, there's so much going on. Um, but if, I think it would happen if you were in the bush or, or you know, probably um, any community that's very connected to a specific place, indigenous communities um, living in traditional ways, you are very aware of the environment around you and you notice things that change. And if you're camping, if you're living there, you're not going to work and then going home again. You're there all the time. And I think that's what he was talking about. Just takes that time to get back in tune with where you are so your brain's not full of all sorts of other things. Mm. And I was only there for a couple of weeks at a time. But he'd, he'd spent um, a lot of time in the dry valleys. And I think that what he was talking about was he was trying to map glacial moraines from different times in Antarctic's history. And this was a... a um, a dry area where there was no snow. And so it was just a matter of looking and noticing, okay, there's granite and dolerite and these other rocks here and I'm walking along this path and now there's no granite. So just little little things like subtly noting, noticing um, how the rocks are changing and what that might mean. Yeah. I mean, you obviously, you, you were there to document um, science and one of you know that that situation was at, at the camp that you went to I think at, at Frisk Hills in the in the dry valleys and mm. I think you know that encapsulated for me I guess just how extreme the conditions are that scientists have to, to work under and I think Tim I'm assuming it was Tim Nash mm. um, made the comment that you know science here is is hard won yeah um, I mean do you want to just read the 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 reading of, of your experience there, because I think it gives will give people a good understanding of just exactly what that environment is like when you're out in the field, not in the warmth yeah. of Scott Base, where you still have your wine and your yeah. um, heating. We still had wine. We, <laughs> <laughs> we had whiskey, actually. Um, okay. <clears throat> the, the guys are planning the next day's field work but I need to be on my own, so I say my goodnights and head for my tent through the bright white of the blowing snow. The surface beneath the snow is dusty and brown, and every time I go into my tent, I track in a bit of 14 million year old dirt mixed with fresh snow. Getting in and out of the tent, which has a fly sheet over the top, is a mission. Because of the cold, I'm wearing my ECW boots, and I need to take them off before crawling inside. It's a one-person tent, and inside is my three-layer sleeping bag, a down bag inside a synthetic bag inside a canvas bag on top of my foam and sheepskin sleeping mats. Beside the bed, my clothes and books are spilling out of a large stuff bag. My pee bottle is in one corner of the tent and my drink bottle is in another. Note to self, do not mix them up. <laughs> I'm a messy traveller and my tendency to fling things from one end of the tent to the other is not good here. As a mixture of dust from outside and moisture from melting snow is making things mucky. I wasn't expecting dirt in Antarctica. 
I strip off everything except my thermals, socks, hat and net gaiter and get as deep into my bags as I can. Despite the time, it's after 9pm, in the falling snow, it's light. The sun won't set here for another three months and there's a gentle orange glow inside my tent. It's cosy and I usually cherish alone time, but I'm having trouble breathing and I'm starting to panic. On my own in the tent, without any chatter around me, I acknowledge to myself that I really don't feel good. My head is buzzing, my chest feels tight and my heart is palpitating. I can't breathe. I don't know if there's something physically wrong with me or if it's anxiety. My father is dying. My fixed-term contract at the university is about to come to an end. I've been on the go, all work, no play, for two years solid, and I think my body has forgotten how to relax. To make it worse, my kids didn't want me to leave home. I've been away a lot the last two years, to academic conferences and back and forth to see my father in the United States where he was having treatment and once he moved back to New Zealand to Christchurch. And at some level I feel selfish and bad for being away again. What the fuck am I doing here? I take stock. I'm alone in a small orange and grey tent on an ice-free plateau in the Dry Valleys region of Antarctica. It's minus 20 degrees and there's a light snow falling, making a gentle pattering sound like someone is throwing small handfuls of sand at my tent. Nearby in the Polar Haven tent, the geologists are gathered around the stove, chatting and having one last drink before bedtime. The guys in the Polar Haven are my friends. I trust them and like them but I'm too ashamed to reveal how on edge I feel. I'm so privileged to be here, but I'm feeling trapped. There's no warm inside I can escape to. If I'm sick, there's no chance of a medivac as the helicopters can't fly in a blizzard. Some people do lose it up here in the dry valleys. It's the cold climate version of going tropo. The other night, Tim told a story about a team camped in a nearby valley radioing in with a send more Valium request. Instead of sending more Valium, they send a helicopter to remove the afflicted young scientist. I have a small vial of diazepam, a benzodiazepine similar to Valium, but in this unfamiliar situation, I'm too anxious to take it. If my symptoms are not anxiety, if there's something else, I worry that taking diazepam in this cold, at this altitude, might have un unintended consequences. It might be contraindicated so I continue without it in case it masks physical symptoms that will be needed to diagnose me. I'm aware that I'm being overdramatic, but it doesn't help me in how I feel. I try some mindfulness techniques. I focus on the orange of the tent, the sound of the dry snow hitting the nylon, the feeling of the cold air on my face, and I become aware of my tiredness. At home, I sometimes lie awake at night and worry, panic even, about climate change, and what we're doing to the planet in the future world my children will grow up in. Tonight I try to focus on my breathing using a technique taught to me by a respiratory physiotherapist. I try to think about how I'm going to get warm, whether my water is going to stay unfrozen, and whether I need to use my pee bottle before I go to sleep. There's nothing more I can do. If I die tonight, then I die tonight. I think about the absurdity of this thought and the unlikeliness of it, and I sleep. So you didn't die. I that was good. No, I woke <laughs> and up. it actually turned out that there was probably a physiological mm. explanation mm. 
right? So, I mean, that was interesting yeah. in itself. I went to talk to Tim in the morning. I thought I'd better tell someone how I was feeling. Mm. Um, and he goes, oh, yeah, 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 cold asthma. <laughs> he said, I get that. And it, it's, uh, I mean, people who have asthma are probably aware of it. I don't get asthma, but um, even people without it can get this sort of, it's sort of like a constricting tightness in your airways and the extreme cold. And I think that was happening to me, but I didn't know what was happening. And so I was getting anxious about it. And it was kind of, you know, turning into a bit of a loop. Um, and, and also I wasn't eating enough. So my colleague, another colleague I was there with, um, I was, you know, I started getting slow and sluggish and very just caught up in my head. And he's like, you're not, you, you know, you need to eat more. And he pretty much sat me down and sort of sort of putting food in front of me, gave me a hot raro as well, which was foul, but I had to drink it. <laughs> and lots of fats, lots of sugars, just so you need, and I knew this in my brain, I knew in that kind of cold you need to be eating at least twice as much as what you'd normally eat. Um, but it's, it's actually quite a difficult thing to do sometimes, mm. to, eat, to eat that much food. Yeah, it was just mm. presumably if you're you know, out in a field camp in yeah. a tent and you've got well, to prepare it. Well, we had, there was excellent food. There right. was, you know, excellent dinners cooked every night and just loads of food. Um, but just when you're busy, it just takes, you have to spend a lot of time putting mm. food in your mouth and eating it. It's, yeah. So, I mean, they are just terribly inhospitable conditions. So mm. who are these people who who choose to spend, as you say, three months at a time there? And and is that part of the allure of the gig or do they do it because it's a necessary evil in order to do the science that they want to do? Oh, I've never met anyone who thought of it like that. I've, I've had a couple of people who maybe said it's just something we've got to do, but no, I think um, the allure of it is often... But not always what leads people to the place. Mm -hmm. And it's just like a more extreme, a lot of people like tramping. And for some people, that's nuts. Why would you do that? And this is just like a more extreme version of that, I guess. And the desire to, to see something incredible, beautiful, amazing. And I think once, you know, for a lot of people, once you go, that, that's hooked, you're hooked. Um, and once you've been once, it's kind of easier to get back again in terms of, of life, I found. Um, it was easier to, to go a second time and then a third time once you've broken that first barrier. Mm -hmm. And for scientists who, um, who start working on a project that involves Antarctic fieldwork, you, you know, you've got to go back. You've, you've got to, from, you know, for most studies, you've got to sort of um, keep on going there. So, I mean, in terms of the science that you did encounter during those kind of three trips, what stands out for you? What was um, you know, particularly captivating? Well, this stuff, there we go. That's the toilet in the oh. Freeze Hills campsite. <laughs> Where but, you got busted. Yeah, by, the, the rock uh, behind is for privacy. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that, so Freeze Hills really was incredible. So I was there with a team of um, geologists and paleoclimatologists and um, what they were doing was um, investigating what 
um, was going on there 15 million years ago. So this surface, um, and it snowed the second day we were there, which was quite unusual. So normally it's a brown surface. Mm. And that surface is 15 million years old, and it hasn't changed since then. So 15 million years ago, there was um, a glacier sort of coming over this plateau, and at the end of the glacier was um, it was warmer back then was a, a little um, pond a melt pond and coming out of the melt pond was uh, a little stream and um, there were trees growing there a little beech trees a stunted beech forest and there were insects and all of this was evidenced in the sediments that were on the surface and um, just with a little trowel, we could dig up a bit of dirt and open up this sort of light brown sandy sediment and see beech leaves. And that was just... Which must have been incredible. Incredible. I mean, can you even imagine in your mind how this that yeah. landscape could have been transformed into yeah. a forest? Yeah. Well, they, I mean, I've, I've trained in geology originally. And so it was all... You know, it was familiar language and and um, everyone there was some sort of earth scientist, whether they were glaciologist or geologist, geomorphologist, geophysicist, um, and all sort of looking at this landscape through different lenses. So some people were digging or drilling holes. Um, some people were looking big picture and looking at what um, was on the surface and the geophysicist was um, doing a seismic survey to see what was going on underneath. Um, and we talked a lot about what it was like and what it would have been like 15 million years ago. And, you know, the glacier would have come over here and, and mm -hmm. this was different and this was like that. And that was quite incredible. And the work they were doing was trying to understand what was happening um, climatically at this place 15 million years ago because there was a reasonably good understanding about what was happening at sea level 15 right. million years ago from sediment cores that have been taken from the ocean. So this was, um, yeah, trying to understand what was happening in, in the mountain. So this was 1,300 metres high. And so this is yeah. part of the broader Antarctic science, I suppose, which is trying to mine the past to kind of predict the future or to understand what's yeah, happening now totally. and what the kind of thresholds yeah. might be yeah. for you know, global warming and how yeah. that might impact the, yeah. the ice shelf. So that must be mm. fascinating to... Yeah, and what, what this sort of data is used for is to ground truth the climate models that we're using to project mm -hmm. into the future to see what's saying. So there are lots of different models, computer models, that are used that take into account all sorts of different um, variables that are used to project climate into the future based on what our carbon dioxide levels are and so on. But one way of testing them or ground truthing them is to run them over scenarios from the past mm -hmm. and then check at certain points if they match the physical evidence that has been found. So the more that's why it's important to get more data points and this was that's what this was about. I mean you're all about communicating climate change and communicating science related to climate change and I think you said in the book 
I, you, don't, you don't know if anything that you've done has made a difference. I don't expect any climate change deniers have read my work. I'm struck by the futility of what I'm trying to do. I mean, do you, do you still feel like that? Um, it's not futile, but I know, you know, for years I wrote a listener science column and it, the page had science written at the top. And so the people who were going to read it were people who were interested in science. And I'm sure I've helped um, people who are interested and concerned to understand some things better, understand what the scientists are doing, get some nuance to what's going on. Um, but at the same time, we have people who are spreading disinformation and uh, 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 arguing against taking action on climate change. And and while in one sense the the you know, the majority of us who are making changes and taking it seriously and doing things, we're moving on. But, you know, that group is, mm. even though they might be a minority, they're kind of getting more entrenched and caught up in all sorts of other nonsense too. So um, that's frustrating. But I also thought that perhaps by writing a book that was about Antarctica rather than climate change mm -hmm. and all the things you need to know about it, might perhaps get some other I mean, have you sorts had of much readers feedback from the book in terms of I guess who is reading it. Oh, well, no, the th the thing that did I know did make an impact is one the thing that I was doing on my second and third trips. I was there with a geologist called Cliff Atkins, who's a colleague at um, Victoria University. He's a geologist, and we were filming lectures oh, for yeah. an online course. And we taught the course through our university, but we also put it online as a MOOC with the edX platform. And we've had about 10,000 people take that online course with our video lectures. And my lectures were about Antarctic history and culture. And Cliff's were geology and paleoclimate. When he presents all this evidence for what it used to be like in the past and what's happening now and what's going to happen in the future and what we understand. And our students, um, you know, they took part in discussion forums and, and wrote um, comments and surveys at the end of each module. And we had a lot of American students, and um, some of them talked about having their mind changed about climate change now that they understood. Yeah, awesome. well, but, which was really satisfying, but mm -hmm. also made me think, well, what, you know, what sort of shit information have you been <laughs> exposed to mm. for this to be new enough to change your mind? You know, there was nothing new or revelatory about what he was saying. He was just communicating it really well, but it's all, you know, established, known stuff. I mean, you trained in geology and decided not mm. to progress with that and went yeah. down the kind of writing and communications line mm. instead. Do you ever think... You know, where is where could you have had the greater impact? You know? Oh, definitely, yeah. Um, and I think part of my fascination with scientists and hanging out with scientists and doing all this science adjacent stuff is I kind of, you know, that's a path that I that could have been me. Mm. And um, and I do sort of think about why. I moved away from it, and I think, you know, when I did geology, I was in the late 1980s, um, there were no women 
academics in the whole Research School of Earth Science. It was all men, all the geologists, the geomorphologists, the geographers, the geophysicists, every single one was male. And it, would, it was like no one even commented on it. That's just, you know, bloke stuff. And there were, I was one of three women out of 25 or 27 in our graduating class. And um, to go on to postgrad, you know, things narrowed down even more. And I think, you know, I just kind of had enough. Of, I love the science. And, you know, the, I wanted to earn money and I wanted to have a slightly more glamorous life than, than gumboots and, <laughs> and swannies. But I also think the culture, I'd had enough of that very narrow culture. And I think it's different today. Um, there are, there are um, I think, equal numbers of, of male, female um, in the department and postgrads, I think, is dominated by, by women. Um, and there are, you know, things not so great higher up, but it is a different culture. Yeah. I mean, I think you've talked a little bit about anxiety, but also climate-related anxiety. You know, you've got three kids, I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, how are you feeling about how the future is looking for their generation? Um, I'm optimistic and hopeful. Um, I think partly because I – how else do you live, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> how, you, you, you have to be positive and hopeful because that's what we need in order to take action and make changes. Um, otherwise, just, you know, whatever, go get drunk. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, that, and, and I think partly, you know, from writing for the listener and, and other media and then now as an academic at looking at what, at media coverage, and I've been working a lot on sea level rise, mm -hmm. and we looked at the, and some media coverage of sea level rise, not just in New Zealand, but there's so much catastrophic stuff out there. So a new paper comes out. And the media goes for the headline, you know, there could be five metres of sea level rise by 2100, catastrophic ice sheet collapse, you know, catastrophe, disaster, all the apocalypse. And those sorts of things, uh, you know, they freak people out. It doesn't usually make people take action because it's so overwhelming and hard to comprehend. But often in the same paper, the same academic article that media are getting this out of and talking about, it also says if we can keep our um, temperature rise this century below two degrees, we should be able to save the Antarctic ice sheet. We won't experience um, this, you know, this catastrophic sea level rise. Um, so why not lead with that? Why not say, okay, look, we've got a chance. This is what we need to do. And we can do it rather than ah, there's a chance everything will all go to shit and um, there'll be a catastrophe. So it's kind of focusing on the, um, um, the positive side of things and the chance we have. Think we're not heading down the worst case scenario, mm -hmm. the, the RCP 8.5, um, that that's already not likely to happen. But we're also not quite um, heading or reaching our Paris Agreement targets each. Mm. We need to either I mean, we need to work harder at that. You said you, you were hopeful when Jacinda Dunn was elected. I mean, do you think that she has delivered? <laughs> um, I think we. 
I think we can do more. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you had to pick one uh, one thing that you rail. would want to see. Rail. Okay. Rail. rail. <laughs> All around the country. Um, yeah. So many of us are ready to get on trains. Um, you know, fast rail from Auckland to Wellington, stopping, you know, even just from, as academics, academics travel a lot. And, and, and climate scientists are some of the worst for flying and, and, you know, building up carbon miles by traveling to conferences. But even around New Zealand, um, if we had a fast rail and overnight rail between Auckland and Wellington, stopping all along the way, that would be fantastic. And I said in my talk yesterday, this is my seventh flight, domestic flight this mm-hmm. year, which mm-hmm. I feel yeah, I mean, about. What, what are your rules? How do you I deal with that in your personal uh, life? Well, I'm, I'm not really one for rules, <laughs> but, but I'm, I'm, I'm having a – I'd already decided this – I'm on sabbatical at the moment – and I'd already decided pre-COVID that I was not going to travel overseas <laughs> and I was you know, trying to have a, a low-carbon sabbatical. Um, and then that option got taken away anyway. Um, um, what I'm, so, of course, I offset my carbon emissions mm-hmm. when I fly. I, um, I was taking part in a tree-planting project at university on Thursday. Um, but in terms of... Moving to um, land-based travel, I'm realizing how my life is too busy. And, and I've talked to other people who are working really hard to live a very low-carbon, zero-waste life, and it takes a lot of time. Mm. It takes a lot of planning and, and a lot of kind of letting go of trying to do all the things that we do. So that's something that I think will take a while to – kind of embed itself in me. Yeah. I mean, we don't have a car. That's That's been a big thing that we've done in the last 12 months is um, getting rid of the car, and that's been fabulous. That's great. We love it. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you survive without a car with, you know, three kids? <laughs> we, well, Jonathan, my husband, he rides a bicycle to work. Um, when I go into uni, I catch a bus. Our kids take the bus to school. Um, our older teenagers, yeah, pretty unimpressed, but but she's um, <laughs> she's she's at uni in Dunedin, um, and when we need a car for something, we um, use a, a car share um, oh, service. Okay. Like in Wellington, we've got Mevo mm-hmm. and City Hop, and we probably do that once a week, and sometimes we get Ubers, um, and we're saving heaps of money. I mean, and the thing is, apart from um, just not using a car so much. It's the thing of not requiring a whole car to be made for our exclusive use, and that's a big part of it. And and because we got to the point where we thought if, if our car craps out, and th- that's what happened is our car crapped out, we'll get an electric car. But then to get a decent electric car is fifteen to twenty thousand mm. dollars, and um, so we delayed. <laughs> And then realise that we we're okay without one, yeah. So I don't know if anyone's considering that option, and if that's possible here, I really recommend it. It's been quite liberating. You don't need to find car parks, yeah. Brilliant. Um, look, I'm conscious that we're running out of time, and I do want to leave time for questions. But um, I guess I just have one last question before we finish. Just the reading bit. Will you go back to Antarctica? <laughs> are you are you done? 
Well, that's, that is something that I addressed in the book. And I guess by my third trip, I already had most of the book written and I had knew that this third trip was writing the sort of end bit of the book. So I had a, a sense of the narrative coming, you know, something about three trips and the narrative arc of it. So that that had 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 kind of it felt like a conclusion. Um, at the moment I don't feel any need or desire to go back. If at some stage in the future there's a reason for me to go back that I can feel some justification for. I would, I might, but at the moment I'm thinking no. And I'm really enjoying um, spending more time in Aotearoa, adventuring here. And I really want to do stuff with my family. Mm. And you can't do that in Antarctica. So um, the rest of my family are a bit more indoorsy <laughs> and, and than me, so it's a matter of trying to convince them. But yeah, I'd really like to do have adventures with my kids and my husband. Nice. Well, I think we're just going to finish, finish with a short reading, which comes from your first trip, I think. Um, yeah. The end of your first trip. Yeah, so this is the trip um, that I was with Alice, Alice the Poet. We were due to fly out at 4am the next day, so we started day seven by packing our bags and doing bag drag. At Scott Base, our bags were weighed, then driven over to McMurdo for the flight home, but it was gently snowing. You can check out, but you might never leave, Matt warned us. Before we left, Alice and I wanted one last walk on the pressure ridges. Oh, there they are. <laughs> we put on our jacket and boots, took a radio and poles, and crossed the transition in front of Scott Bass. We started following the flagged route, taking the same path, but without even needing to discuss it, walking separately. Close enough to be able to find each other in a sudden whiteout but far away enough to have the sense of being alone. A light snow was falling, but we could still see Minna Bluff in the distance. Even so, all definition had gone. The ice was white, the falling snow was white, and I lost my sense of where the ground was. The dusting of snow had obliterated all footprints from the last few days. As I went on, the cloud dropped lower, and I was suspended in whiteness. If I looked down, I could see my boots and my pole, but I'd ceased to be in a place. My only reference points were the sound of flags flapping and the distant beeping of a reversing truck. I stopped for a few breaths, then took some cautious steps forward until I could make out a line of red flags, gently whipped by the wind. A skewer glided close by, checking if I was edible. I was wearing a pink hat, and I hoped he didn't mistake it for the seal placenta that skewer is so fond of. The radio buzzed as a field party in one of the Haglands called by. Scott Base, Scott Base, this is H3, over. I stopped by a melt pool. The turquoise pool and the dark cyan of a near vertical slab of ice beside it seemed obnoxious with colour. And more red flags. Without the flags, there was no scale. Without the flags, I'd be seeing ice mountains, deep ravines, wide blue lakes. I walked down a slope and found myself lost in a deep ice valley. I followed the flags up over a rise. There was Alice, notebook in hand. Like me, she was staring out at the red flags, the white snow, the endless plain, Antarctica. The beauty of it. I shed tears again for Antarctica. 
the pleasure and warmness of new friends. I cried for something I could never really possess, a fleeting experience that I could never hope to replicate. My sunglasses fogged and Antarctica was gone. Goodness. <laughs> Brilliant, thank you. Now, I would like to open it up to the audience if people have questions that they would like to ask Rebecca. Yep, come a little bit. Yeah, um, mixed feelings. I, I guess I'd sort of have an um, instinctive antipathy to it. There, there was um, a point where I was at Cape Royds and... Um, January, and we were there by the penguin colony in Shackleton's hut, and we'd been camping and doing some filming, and we knew that the tourist boats were going to be arriving in a week, and that people were going to be lining up to go into the hut, you know, for one minute and take their photos, or lining up, you know, sort of walking up the trail that I was on, and. Um, I didn't want to see that. I didn't want to be there for that, and um, and 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 now that the there's this some of the operators are helicoptering visitors into the dry valleys to to see them, and yeah, I don't like it. But I'm also aware, you know, why do I get to go and other people don't? You know, why why am I so special that? You know, how can I say, well, it's just for me and the scientist, you can't come. So it's kind of, you know, a complicated one. Um, there are environmental protocols in place that are meant to um, protect Antarctica from too many visitors. And, and visitor numbers were going up, and I think in our COVID, things have gone down again. But I think it's something that needs to be um, yeah, managed very carefully and closely. Sure. Um, yeah, so, f I mean, for a long time, I just thought Antarctica is, the science is so important. That's why, that's why we go there and that's why we have a base there because the science is so important and now I understand more about it. That's totally geopolitics. It, it's about um, having a base there and having a year-round presence there. And if you look at it from that way, the, the reason, the justification for that is the science. So, yeah, there's a whole, I mean, it's a reason why it's managed by MFAT. Um, Antarctica New Zealand sort of comes under their jurisdiction um, rather than a science organisation. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very aware of that, but, um, and, and it's probably good to be reminded of it now and again, but if you're down there doing the science, that's what you care about and that's what you're doing. But very much, um, you know, the reason for having people there year-round is geopolitical. It was just, that was, um, I did play around with some different numbers. And it uh, was really um, the place that we were camped at in Freeze Hills. That place 
that landscape hadn't changed in 15 million years. So it was 15 million years ago was the last time anything happened there. Um, and the landscape there has been preserved unchanged, they, they think, for 15 million years. So I, I picked that number and it sounded nice. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Yes, it was. And 15 million years ago, it was about um, 20 degrees warmer than it is today. It was up to eight degrees. Yeah. So this was a this was a warm period that was part of the Earth's natural cycle of warming and cooling, which is different from what's happening now, which is a human-induced warming, but but still heading in the same direction. So it's looking at those times in the past where the planet has, natural, for natural variability reasons, been a lot warmer, gives us an idea about what's likely to happen as our planet warms this time, which is happening because of human activity. Okay. Um, uh, yes, my colleagues are heading in this direction and um, and I've, I've written about that a bit in the book like first one of the my these paleoclimatologists I was working with one of them got an electric car and now another one's got an electric car and then someone got an electric bike and and one of them is vegan one of them loves meat and he's trying to <laughs> trying not to you know it's like the, the last thing that he can't quite and I think um something that they do and that I encourage them to do and I think we should all do is, is you know, bring your whole self to the job and often scientists or traditionally scientists have, um, you know, done this very dispassionate, just talking about the facts kind of thing. But I think um, when scientists working in this space talk about their personal lives as well and talking about the changes that they're making, it's, you know, it's like putting your money where your mouth is sort of thing. And it, and it's also really important to talk about it to normalize it. Like in some, I know that the university is a very um, a liberal, Mike Wellington University liberal microculture. Um, but we go out and we speak in communities and with writers festivals and community groups and in schools, and we talk about these things. And there's a lot of people. I like I liked the carbon conservative. That's a good way of talking about it. There's a lot of people doing so much more. Um, there are zero waste campaigners and um, and um, uh, the zero carbon movement. And I think just you know we should all be talking about it. We should all be talking about it and about how you know normalizing the sort of new behaviours that we have because it's when you normalize things that um, more people get on board. It's like oh. Everyone rides their bike to work now. Oh, you know, better stop mm. taking my car. That's uncool. Um, yeah, so it's not about shaming other people, but but normalizing it. We don't have a car. It's great. It's cool. We, we haven't regretted it for a minute. It was easy. Um, and, yeah. Sorry, we yeah. are going to have yeah. to finish now because we need to, we need to move okay. on. Okay. And we need to get Rebecca outside okay. to... Um, yeah, to do some book signings. But thank you so much for great questions and thank you so much for your time, Rebecca. Thank you. Thank you. 
that was Rebecca Priestley speaking to Nikki McDonald at the 2021 Marlborough Book Festival. A big thanks to all the writers who have supported the festival, as well as the audiences that attended in person or listened online. If you'd like to learn more about this year's event, head over to marlboroughbookfest.co.nz. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please do recommend it to friends and family. Thanks for listening.